I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to IntroVets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to IntroVets Podcast. Hi. The Halloween Spooktacular. Woo. <laughs> oh, Lord. We have come to the end of our season, but as promised, a Halloween episode just for you. And we actually are here. That's right. Doing it. Let's talk about this episode. We need to go over a little bit of information before we dive right in. Disclaimer. Disclaimer time. Remember when we covered rabies? That was all the way back in season one. And that was in an episode titled... I want to drink your blood. No, that's not what it was. Uh, That episode was episode 14, A Very Big Deal. And during that episode, I talked about sort of the historical roots of vampirism myths and how modern-day scholars have connected it to rabies and even presented some scientific literature on the topic, as crazy as that sounds. (laughs) So I thought... You know what? That was a super fun episode. It's Halloween. Let's present a similar thing regarding another common Halloween time myth, the werewolf, right? Surely there is some sort of medical basis that has been connected back to werewolves. And the short answer is there are several, okay? But it's a more complicated answer than that. And We'll get into it, but just know that my initial intention for the episode was for it to be something much different than what it's going to end up being. When we're talking about werewolves as a myth, as a legend, they are complicated. There is no one place that they originate. Many cultures in many geographic locations across the world have had myths of werewolves or werewolf-like creatures for a long-ass time. And although there is some scientific literature, like actual written papers, like scientific studies, like with the vampirism, rabies connection, there are those that pertain to werewolves. However, there are some pretty well-reasoned arguments against those papers as well. So people saying, hey, You know, you guys are looking at this from like a modern day werewolf perspective, if you can, you know, think about it that way. Many of the modern day ideas about werewolves were not the case originally. And so you can't take the modern concept of what a werewolf is supposed to be and say, oh, they made this exact myth up a long time ago to explain X disease that was really happening because several of the key features that people have linked to other diseases are missing from the folklore originally. So then they don't make sense. Uh The other thing, and I think a couple of episodes ago when I was, you know, promoting this episode, I mentioned I was going to have an exciting clinical case. And I have decided to not present that because I could not figure out a way to do it in an ethical way. For lack of a better term, I could not figure out a way to do it in like a sensitive way. This is supposed to be a fun episode. This is our time to kick back and let loose and just have a good old time. I didn't want to give a lighthearted take to something that could be a very serious issue for a lot of people. So I have eliminated that. 
clinical case that was pretty recent. And instead, we're going to talk about some historical accounts that are hundreds of years old, because I feel like that, like, it's not too soon. Like, plenty of time has passed for us to have some distance and perspective on these. And if we make light of people who lived hundreds of years ago, you know. That's just hauling us. I, yeah. Well, you know, hey, sure. I, that I'll sign up for. That's fine. We are going to talk about some true crime elements. Okay. But from a long time ago. So this episode is going to be a combination of several of my very favorite things. True crime, wacky paranormal history, scary stories, and of course, getting to the bottom of mysteries, which is like overall one of my favorite things, right? Just like in everything that I enjoy, Mm -hmm. that's the bottom thing. Uh, Some of the sources in this episode are somewhat... Less academically prestigious than others, okay? (laughs) Uh, So just remember, this is a fun episode. We will also briefly discuss human mental health issues. And so I'm going to give a disclaimer. We are not human medical professionals, and this episode is just for fun. And now, here is the episode. This story is about a man named Peter Stump. (laughs) Stop laughing. That's unfortunate. (laughs) That's hundreds of years ago. Uh-huh. Just wait till I tell you about why he probably had that last name. Uh, my imagination's going. running wild. I know. Please okay. continue. Okay. Stump was a wealthy farmer in a rural community in Bedborg, Germany. I looked up on Google Translate how to pronounce that word. I am doing the best I can. Peter was a widower with two children in the 1580s. And in 1589, he was the subject of a notorious werewolf trial. Uh Uh-oh. So you've heard of witch trials, right? Around the same time, although it was less widespread, there was like a surge of werewolf trials where literally people were convicted and put to death for being werewolves. Hi. Yes. I did not know that until I researched this episode. Sad to say, Peter Stump, one of those people. The written records for this case were sort of lost to time until the 1920s when a paranormal investigator slash occultist slash sleuth found some original pamphlets about this case. Now, the pamphlets were not like, again, scientifically rigorous. No. Okay. It was the 1500s. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mostly the pamphlets were like, be aware of the dangers of being a werewolf. And it like listed all of the situations that they felt like were werewolf adjacent. And then it recounted the trial. Okay. That is really the whole amount of information that we have about this case. So just know that what I'm going to present to you is just kind of like a biased thing. We don't have, like, in the 1590s, they didn't, like, have a court stenographer and stuff. And, like, there was nothing like that. What? Right. (laughs) You couldn't just read back the transcript and stuff like that. Spoiler alert. Things do not work out well for Peter. I would imagine not. Okay. Why was he called Stump? All right. Missing an appendage? Yes. In one report. One of his hands was missing, and that's why he was called Stump. And they used that to say that that must be the wolf 
that people had seen because the wolf was missing a paw. Uh, let's see what they did there. Right. So his missing uh, appendage was used as, quote, evidence against him to convict him for being the werewolf. Picture it didn't happen. <laughs> right. <laughs> Picture it didn't happen. It was the one-armed man. Like, seriously, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it's impossible, no. but it's very, you know, Harrison Ford up in here. <laughs> I guess Harrison Ford was a really long time after that. What Harrison Ford reference then are you making? The Fugitive, what? Sorry, I haven't seen Girl, that. what? Are you serious? Positive. I okay. In the movie The Fugitive, which was in fact a movie remake, like reboot thing of a TV show, I want to say. I don't think it was a movie. I think it was a TV show. Anyway, don't quote me on that part. But it was some old type of media where a guy is convicted for his wife's murder but the whole time he's like, it wasn't me. It was the one-armed man. <laughs> and like in the movie, you know that Harrison Ford didn't do it, but you don't know who does it until the end. Well, I mean, you knew the one-armed man, but you don't know who was directing the one-armed man. And it's a whole thing. And Tommy Lee Jones is in it. And they get to this thing and Harrison Ford is running because he's been in a train accident or something. There's a train somehow involved. I don't remember exactly, but he's running. Then Tommy Lee Jones is chasing him and he gets to like this overspill where he could like jump off the side of a dam or go back to prison. And Harrison Ford turns around and is like, I didn't kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones is like, I don't care. And then Harrison Ford jumps off the dam and they can't find him and he escapes. Well, good for Harrison Ford. I don't know that we're going to leave that part in. But anyway, <laughs> it was really, you should watch that movie. I can't believe you haven't seen it. Okay, we are now super off topic. <laughs> okay, let's bring it back around. Mm -hmm. Bring it back around. So, one, one, one hand man. One hand man. So, here's what had happened. What had happened was. What had happened was, Peter did technically confess to practicing black magic since adolescence. He said that the devil had given him a magic belt that allowed him to transform into, quote, the likeness of a greedy, devouring wolf, strong and mighty, with eyes great and large, which in the night sparkled like fire, a mouth great and wide, with the most sharp and cruel teeth, a huge body, and mighty paws. That's from the pamphlet. Mm, either yeah. he found some special drugs or he had uh, something... Not quite chemically happening upstairs. Okay, let me finish telling you the story because we're going to come to the reason why this might have occurred. Mm. That he just was like, yeah, I totally did that. Plus, I'm like, all right, I feel like the person writing this pamphlet embellished a little bit. Because who under duress is going to come out with some type of speech like this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. I mean, I think they missed their calling as a dramatic tabloid writer. Like, he was like, my eyes would be sparkling and all. Like, no, I really don't think that's the situation. <laughs> my teeth is cruel. Okay, so then he said, you know, like, hey, how I come back to being a person is removing the magic belt that, you know, the devil gave me. Mm. Right. So it seems super legit, right? Mm -hmm. So, JJ, mm. there is a bit of a problem with this confession. Can you guess what might have been wrong with this confession? Um... Was it hearsay? It was not hearsay, but it was under extreme duress. Yes. So it was made after 
Um, he was stretched on a rack and tortured in other various ways. Well, then he might have been talking about some cruel teeth and sparkly eyes. Then. <laughs> if he was seeing stars and they, stuff. Oh, they, my God. They, they interrogated him to the pain. They did. Okay, after his confession, they tortured him further. Okay. And um, ultimately, he confessed killing and eating 14 children, including his own son and two pregnant women. Ow. He was convicted of serial murder and cannibalism. Now, here's an even more fucked up part of the story, as if you were like, well, I can't get more fucked up than this. Just wait. Okay. He was also convicted of incest regarding his relationship with his daughter. Okay. They also put his daughter to death because of that. That's some shit. That is some shit. I agree. If it did happen, which I'm thinking... I mean, that's ultimate victim blaming right there. If you torture someone to the point that they're like, I did all of this stuff and then all... You know, like, even if it's true, even if it's true, you're going to kill the daughter? What the hell, man? Okay, let me keep going, because it's like even more dumb shit happened. So then he also had a mistress named Catherine. They killed her, too. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. Wait a minute. If he's a widower, how he got a mistress? Okay, well... You know, after your after your spouse dies, you're allowed to date again. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Why are you calling this person a mistress? Okay. Well, because it was back in the day, you know, and everything um, is supposed like... supposed to get married and stay married no matter if they're dead or alive. Well, in, in all, I don't think that, you know, living the strong single life was like a thing that was allowed mm. in the 1500s. Just a guess. At any rate, <laughs> she was, she got killed too, so it didn't really matter. All of them were tortured to death, and I will not get into it, but I read about it, and I was like, dude, what in the hell? You know in Ghostbusters, the original movie? No, wait. It's in the second one. You know how in Ghostbusters 2, where there's that painting of that guy or whatever, and they're like, yeah, Vigo, he lived to be like over 100, and when he died, and then they go over the ways that he died, where it's like he was... Shot, stabbed, killed, put on a rack, his head was cut. Like, all of that stuff. It was a that type of situation with these people. They were thorough. After an extensive search, no magical belt from the devil was ever located. No. That is a shocker. And then, to add insult to injury, this execution, this group execution, was conducted on October 31st, 1589. Of course it was. I put in my notes, dramatic ass. <laughs> like, why are you going to do that on Halloween, dicks? Um, so why did this happen? We don't know, because all the information that we have is from this pamphlet. So obviously this guy was not a werewolf. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to go out on a limb and be like, I don't believe that there's enough evidence to claim that werewolves exist. Okay, I, I don't think that they do. So what are the potential explanations? Well, one is that this was a way to explain a serial killer and that this was, you know, serial killers no doubt were around back in that time and they just weren't well understood and that this was a way to do that. When we start talking about medical conditions that are potentially attributable to, you know, this longstanding werewolf myth, we should kind of mentally add the presence of serial killers in society kind of covertly during that time that needs to be added to the list well these people that he supposedly killed were these people that actually were dead well see we don't know because it's the 1500s so like how are we gonna know yeah 
the only information really from the trial is from that pamphlet I was telling you about, which mm-hmm. is like like a pretty biased source, right? Mm-hmm. So if he did kill them, mm-hmm. he definitely wasn't a werewolf, okay? <laughs> Probably just a very bad person, okay? Now there's another potential explanation for this case. So some sources suggest a potential political motive because Stump was an early convert to Protestantism Mm. at a time when the Roman Catholics had recently defeated all of the local Protestants and kind of forced them out. And in the pamphlet I was telling you about, it talks about how all of these top German officials were there for a small trial in the rural countryside, which is like, what? Mm. Like, why would they be there if not to make an example, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, some people are like, this was actually a way for the Roman Catholics in power to apply pressure to the Protestant community to switch back to Catholicism. That smells right. Right. It's a little worrisome. So I will definitely include the relevant links for that story in the show notes for people that want to read more about it. Again, recall that this is an episode for fun, so I would not normally use some of these sources when I (laughs) cite things, but look, it's a Halloween episode. So that's one big example through time of Mm -hmm. a major werewolf trial. And there are others that follow similar routes where you're just like, okay, what now? (laughs) This seems a little crazy. (laughs) So do we know like the origin or where the idea, the original idea of werewolves came from? The term that we use today, werewolf, comes from the Old English were, meaning man, and wolf, meaning wolf, right? Mm-hmm. So werewolf is literally man-wolf. And then in Greek, lycanthrope, meaning wolf-human. Now, these days, the definition of a werewolf is like a human with the ability to shapeshift into a wolf, and this might happen on purpose. Or after being kind of, quote, infected, right, or cursed, following a bite or a scratch from an already existing werewolf. And these transformations occur on a night with a full moon, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of the modern day concept. We have written historical descriptions of werewolves of some type. I'm not saying it's the type I just defined, like it's kind of a precursor to that. But they date all the way back to the first century A.D. Okay, so that's a long ass time. Mm -hmm. Werewolves are widespread in European folklore, and these beliefs spread to the Americas via colonialism. And then the belief in werewolves moved on a similar timeline to beliefs regarding witches. And there were actually these werewolf trials that we talked about earlier around the same time as witch trials were starting to be conducted. Now, many cultures have some version of a werewolf, whether it's the idea of this being a curse. In some cultures, there are like wolf charmers or wolf riders that are kind of werewolf adjacent. There are cultures in which um, there's this idea of, you know, kids being raised by wolves, like in the Jungle Book kind of a Mm -hmm. thing. There are cultures where it's not a wolf, but some other animal that the person is cursed to turn into. In some cultures, turning into a wolf or other animal is not a curse, but like a gift. Mm -hmm. And that person is actually blessed. So it would be literally impossible for me to talk about in one 
episode this designed to be for 45 minutes <laughs> um, about all of the types of, quote, werewolves that exist. We will hit on a few. But just know that this fascination, this human fascination with wolves runs deep because we have interacted with wolves for such a long time. And really, it's up into the modern day, wolves were actually like a common cause of human death, right? Like mm-hmm. wolf attacks were like a thing that you had to worry about, right? So they were in the culture, in the lore, and that's probably how these stories sort of started. Is there a particular time in history where uh, werewolf reports were more prevalent? Yes, absolutely. So in the 16th century, that's the 1500s, like we were just talking about. Uh-huh. A lot of stuff was going on, okay? (laughs) So we've got numerous reports of werewolf attacks and subsequent trials in the 16th century, okay? France, Germany, okay, many parts in Europe were having this issue. So some of the cases involved very clear evidence where the person that was accused was like, this person for sure fucking did these things, right? So, like, again, the modern-day concept of a serial killer or cannibal. But those concepts were poorly understood, so they were like, boom, it must be a werewolf, Mm -hmm. okay? In those cases, the evidence pointed towards, yes, this person did do all these crimes, but there was, like, no wolf element that was, like, provable. So, in another case, a man in Geneva killed 16 children when he had changed himself into a wolf, allegedly, he was executed in October. Again, weird. Okay. Mm. In the 1500s, 1580. It's unclear to me after doing research, like, again, did he really kill the children? You know, like a weird predator guy? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, did he not? And for some reason, they were like, ah, clearly it was a werewolf and it's that guy. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. Peak attention to werewolves came in the late 16th and early 17th century as the European witch hunts were really ramping up, okay? So a number of treatises on werewolves were therefore written in France during that time, okay? Werewolves were cited all over the place, and a teenage werewolf was sentenced to life imprisonment in Bordeaux in 1603. Many church higher up people, priests and pastors and all of those type of people high up in the church, wrote serious things about like the dangers of being a werewolf. I'm sorry, it's not funny. The dangers of being a werewolf and that kind of thing. Okay. And some people thought that werewolves were the victims in all this and that it was a delusion. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could believe that. Mm-hmm. Induced by a, quote, natural superabundance of melancholy, a.k.a. major depression, right? I'm like, dude, actually, I think that that was probably the precursor statement to clinical lycanthropy, which is the belief that you're a werewolf, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. so some of these these people really did think that they were werewolves. Mm -hmm. Now, whether they harmed other people, I don't know. There are some modern-day examples that if you Google, you can find about modern-day people who think that they're werewolves that do harm people. But I did not want to bring those discussions into this episode that's supposed to be fun. Mm -hmm. Okay. (laughs) That's a bummer. Right. That's uncool. 
And then lastly, there are reports of like literal wolves killing people because that is literally a thing that some wolves do, right? Yeah. And so some people were like, this is clearly a werewolf when it was probably just a wolf or like several wolves that were attacking all at the same time due to Mm -hmm. various environmental factors. Mm -hmm. And one example of that, the Beast of Gévaudan in south central France, this Series of attacks happened from 1764 to 1767, so like three years. It killed upwards of 80 men, women, and children. Wow. And in that case, uh, they obviously started killing a bunch of wolves, right? And eventually the killing stopped. So they assumed that they had killed the, quote, werewolf responsible. But as people have looked back on that over time, probably they killed multiple wolves, of which several were responsible for these deaths. Mm -hmm. But when they got the wolf that they thought was the actual, uh, you know, one, they did special things to make it not come back. And I don't want to talk about it. Okay. I mean, after it was dead. Okay. Yikes. You know, during that time, wolves were among the most feared predators in Europe. And so... Scholars think like it's only natural that they would be the subject of these sorts of tales uh, that were projected onto the folklore of evil shapeshifters. So if you were going to transform into anything super scary, a wolf is super fucking scary when it's like the major thing that you have to fear. It's like the main human predator. The Red Riding Hood. Um, Turn it into your meemaw. That's right. And in other... Other cultures, other areas where there's not wolves, but there are other things like big cats, there are these similar sorts of legends where people shapeshift into like the killer cats. So wear hyenas in Africa and wear tigers in India and wear pumas and wear jaguars in southern South America. Wear 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 pumas. Wear pumas. <laughs> Did I say boomers? You did. Oh, shit. Well, look, <laughs> I'm from funny. Alabama, okay? I'm from Alabama. It comes out every once in a while. I listen to some of our episodes, and I'm like, gosh, I sound super professional right here. And then I'll just hit a word where I'm like, what? Or something, and I'm like, what in the hell? This sounds bizarre. Mm, yep. Anyway. So back in the day, what what did it take to be a werewolf? What What were the signs? Are they different than, you know, the moon, the silver, and today's stuff? They vary a lot from culture to culture. The transformation into a wolf form might be temporary or it might be permanent, depending on which uh, myth we're talking about. The were-animal might be a man who himself has transformed. It may be a body double situation or, for Game of Thrones fans, like a warg situation, like where brand morgue into the wolf you know Mm -hmm. so that was maybe a situation uh so that was historically a potential situation related to werewolves sometimes it was the soul that left the body and inhabited a wolf then came back later and in that situation the body would be left in a state of trance while the soul was gone or it may be nothing more than the wolf being a messenger of a human being And then this might be also like a familiar, okay, like similar to the vampire, how 
vampires will have a familiar, which is like either an animal or a person that sort of does its bidding. Mm-hmm. So they were thinking like this is a person who's got a familiar that just happens to be a wolf and they can direct the wolf to do like whatever they want. But the main sort of uniting feature is that somehow a person through wolf, somehow a person through some sort of wolf adjacent situation harms another person and usually injures them or kills them in the process. So in European folklore, people who are werewolves were said to have physical traits even in their human form, so that you could tell who these people were, even when they weren't in the form of the wolf. And these include things like having both eyebrows meet in the middle at the bridge of the nose, so the unibrow. There you go. <laughs> if you had curved fingernails, low-set ears, and a swinging stride. In some cultures, werewolves could be identified in the human form, by cutting the human to see if there was fur up underneath their skin. Which makes me wonder, now I did not encounter this in any research, but that part makes me wonder about the little uh, tumors that will often be full of hair. Mm -hmm. So like, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like, I can see how that would actually potentially Mm -hmm. occur. And that makes me feel worried about people who have that skin condition. (laughs) Yeah, that could be a problem. Right. Okay, so in Russia, there was a superstition that werewolves could be recognized by bristles that were present under their tongue. The appearance of the werewolf varies from culture to culture, but it's most commonly portrayed as being indistinguishable from just an old ordinary wolf. So this is something that Hollywood has really changed mm-hmm. because I can't think of a werewolf movie off the top of my head where it's like, oh, here I have turned into just a regular wolf. Usually there's like a humanoid form to the wolf. It stands on two feet and that kind of a thing. Correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I'm a consumer of significant numbers of B-horror movies. Can you think of one? The only one I can think of is not a horror movie, but it wasn't necessarily a werewolf either. It was talking about Jack Nicholson, that one? No. No. Twilight. Oh. Well, Twilight. You're going to do that? I don't fucking count, JJ. <laughs> don't come at me with damn Twilight. Sparkly ass. Anyway. <laughs> I knew that. Twilight is not. If you it, was, look, it wasn't a horror movie. If you were listening to this and bad being movie. like, werewolves from Twilight do count in this. Just, just turn it off. Turn it off right now. <laughs> I'm kidding. I guess you can stay. (laughs) Twilight. Oh, my God. You asked. (laughs) Okay. So they look like normal wolves with the exception of not having a tail. Hmm. Okay. Now, this no tail thing might be a holdover characteristic of witches in animal form. So, like, a lot of witches in animal form were thought to, like, not have the tail for some reason. Um, Oh, no, Manx's. The uh, werewolf is often larger, retains their human eyes and voice. And in, like, Sweden, for example, one would say the werewolf could be distinguished from a regular wolf because, (laughs) I'm sorry, it would run on three legs and hold its fourth leg up behind it like a tail. I don't know. (laughs) Look, okay. I'm just, I'm just imparting the information. I did not create the information. What in the truck door? I, 
I don't know. Throughout these myths, it's usually understood that after a night of gallivanting around, a werewolf is going to be super tired, right? Mm -hmm. Like in Harry Potter, okay? Mm -hmm. All right, where, you know, you got to sleep off your hangover pretty much of of the full moon hangover situation. So according to this uh, literature, how does one become a werewolf? Well, that can also vary significantly. I would imagine. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so (laughs) one of the easiest ways of becoming a werewolf would be to remove all of your clothes and putting on a belt made of wolf skin, and (laughs) that's it. You just become a wolf that way, which is, I guess, how the belt situation came into play. Remember at the Mm -hmm. top of the episode, I told you about the magical belt from the devil? Like, Mm -hmm. I was thinking, what? What would that have to do with anything? But clearly there is, like, a historical assumption about wolf skin belts. You just get naked, put on a wolf skin belt, and boom, you're all set. Go dance around in the moonlight. Okay. In other cases, one might rub their entire body with a magic salve to turn into a werewolf. If you drink rainwater out of the footprint of any animal, you could turn into that animal. Or you might drink from certain enchanted streams. What? Okay. In Sweden, werewolves were thought to be brought about by draining a cup of specially prepared beer and repeating a set formula, like an incantation. Mm -hmm. In Russia, uh, this was also thought to be the case. In Italy, France, and Germany, a man or woman could turn into a werewolf if he or she on a certain Wednesday or Friday, Mm. slept outside on a summer night with the full moon shining directly on the face. Okay. In other cases, transformation was accomplished by satanic alliance. And then divine punishment. Okay, so you might anger God or the gods and be cursed to have this affliction from now on. Mm. Really, there's not anything in, like, the old school lore that talks about getting transformed from bites or scratches. <laughs> I don't know exactly when that came in, but that's more of a modern invention. Probably with rabies. Okay, well, maybe, and we'll talk about that a little bit in just a second. But actually, one of the main reasons why people argue against the idea that rabies can explain werewolf myths is the fact that werewolves weren't considered to be like a contagious situation for a very long time. So I'm going to say maybe, but certainly that's not how they originated. Maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe people saw rabid animals, understood that rabies was transmitted by bite, and then that changed the myth. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that we can say that rabies created the myth right. from the beginning. Yeah. I think that's the problem that some scholars have with the data that talks about rabies and werewolves together. Mm-hmm. That we don't sort of have that same sort of a thing with the vampirism angle. Vampirism has always sort of been bite-associated, but werewolves were not necessarily. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. So I definitely want to talk about the medical side of things. But what were some remedies if you found yourself being a werewolf? Okay. So there are, again, various methods. Okay. So the ancient Greeks and Romans believed in the power of exhaustion 
So they would just like run people ragged as a cure for lycanthropy. <laughs> a tired dog is a good dog. That's right. So essentially dog training principles, okay? Mm-hmm. So they would be subjected to long periods of physical activity so that they could be purged of the curse. <laughs> And this practice stemmed from the fact that many alleged werewolves would be left feeling weak and debilitated after committing uh, their, like, predatory behaviors. So if they could keep them in that exhausted state, maybe they wouldn't, you know, transfigure again. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Now, in medieval Europe, if you found yourself accused of being a werewolf, uh, you could use three different methods to cure yourself. You could take medicine made from wolf's bane. You could undergo surgery. That was not in any way elaborated upon, so that (laughs) makes me feel nervous about what the hell type of surgery we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Or you could have an exorcism. Mm. So, you know, not great options all around. Many of the cures advocated by medieval medical practitioners proved fatal to the patients. (laughs) No. Yes. Yes, JJ. (laughs) Okay. So there is a Sicilian belief that is thought to be of Arabic origin uh, that werewolves can be cured by (laughs) being struck on the forehead or scalp with a knife. That might fix several things. Several problems. I mean. I mean, consider life a problem. (laughs) No. No kidding. Oh, dear. I believe it'd stop him from doing several things, not just werewolfing. Yep. Or one might pierce the werewolf's hands with nails. That's rude. I agree. Now, there are some less extreme methods. Okay, so uh, say, for example, in Germany, a werewolf could be cured if uh, you were to simply address it three times by its given Christian name. Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Exactly. That's the exact situation. Yes. And then conversion to Christianity. Oh, yeah. That cures everything. It does. Okay. So one might just convert to Christianity and have their werewolf accusations disappear. Convenient. Convenience. Okay. And there is werewolf-adjacent lore, again, for a lot of cultures and places that we have not touched on. And for that, I apologize, but we just can't fit it all in one episode. Mm -mm. So always, you know, check the show notes, check social media. I'll have all the sources on here for you to take a look at. And if you're super interested in this topic and you want to learn more about werewolf lore from other cultures, you can use that as a diving off point to fall into some really, really interesting Wikipedia holes. Get your Miney Granger on. That's right. (laughs) That's right. But before we sign off on the episode, I want to talk to you about the original point of the whole episode, which was medical conditions that might have inspired myths of werewolves. So there is not a single one that makes sense, in my opinion. Mm, There are problems with all of them. I am less convinced about the origin of this for werewolves than I am for, like, the connection between rabies and vampirism, which I'm, like, super impressed by, and I think it's 100% legit. I'm just going to kind of go down the list and hit the high points because there are a lot of conditions that people have tried to use to explain werewolf lore. And I do just want to preface this by saying that in talking about these conditions, 
It is not our intention in any way to belittle people uh, or ostracize people that had these conditions. This is literally just to be presented as information because we are medically curious people or else we wouldn't have this podcast. So all that said, with a grain of salt, (laughs) here are various conditions that have been proposed as explanations for the werewolf. The first one is porphyria. Now, porphyria is a disease that has also been used to explain vampirism myths as well. In 1963, Dr. Lee Illis of Guy's Hospital in London wrote a paper titled On Porphyria and the Etiology of Werewolves, and in it, he argues that historical accounts on werewolves could have been referring to victims of congenital porphyria because they have the following symptoms photosensitivity, which is sensitivity to light, reddish-colored teeth, which might look like blood-stained teeth, and psychosis. You know, psychosis would be like hallucinations, delusions, things like that. And that this cluster of symptoms could have been the grounds for werewolf accusations. However, other people have said this can't be the case because mythological werewolves were almost invariably portrayed as resembling true wolves, okay? Clearly, people with porphyria (laughs) don't magically look like wolves, okay? And the human forms were rarely physically conspicuous as porphyria victims, right? What they're saying is, like, if you have porphyria, it's obvious, and those obvious physical traits weren't necessarily associated with the human forms of werewolves. The other ailment that people think of as like, oh, it's, quote, the werewolf disease is hypertrichosis, which is just uh, excessive hair growth. And this is a hereditary condition. So people have said historically, you know, the myth of werewolves must have come from this excessive hair growth. And again, this is something that has been argued against because this is not a common disease. It's pretty rare. And you would think if it's rare, it probably didn't happen on a large scale. Werewolf cases were widespread across Europe. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't necessarily make sense. And so then lastly, we come to rabies, which we talked a little bit about before. There are some pretty exciting similarities between the symptoms of rabies and some of the legends. So the main one being that if you're bitten by a werewolf, you could turn into a werewolf yourself. Uh, However, like we talked about, this idea that being a werewolf was infectious was not really a thing until the modern day. So whereas it might have been incorporated over time into the myths uh, because of rabies, I don't think that the werewolf myths originated with rabies. And And after reading that argument, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And serial killers, which we talked about a little bit before. So... If you have a situation where someone is going around seemingly at random severely mutilating people, then you might think that only a monster is capable of that, literally. Yeah. I mean, they're right. Finally, I want to talk about clinical lycanthropy, which is the belief that you are, in fact, a werewolf. Clinical lycanthropy is a rare psychiatric syndrome that involves the delusion that the affected person can transform into, has transformed into, or is an animal. 
Now, this might not be just wolves. It could be any animal. Mm -hmm. Like when they're lucid, patients report some sort of memory or belief that they sometimes feel like an animal or they have felt like one in the past. And sometimes patients behave in a manner that resembles animal behavior, such as howling, growling, clawing. And then, unfortunately, there are like cases in which people who thought they were werewolves have attacked other people. This is a rare condition, and the underlying cause is just not known. Uh, but it's usually thought to be some sort of idiosyncratic expression of a psychotic episode. And some conditions that could cause psychotic episodes include schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or clinical depression. Now, again, this is not common at all. And it has also been associated with drug intoxication and withdrawal or potentially having some sort of a cerebrovascular disease. So mm -hmm. if you have something messing with the blood flow to your brain, uh, if you've been hit in the head, you got a traumatic brain injury, dementia, a delirium, or seizures. It's thought that these like biological abnormalities in the brain combined with some type of cultural influence is what results in this belief of being a wolf. Makes sense. Yeah. Historical cases of clinical lycanthropy. I decided I'm not going to go over any recent ones because I felt like it was too soon. But some of these, I'm like, this has been plenty of time. We can talk about them on a podcast. Okay. So several parts of the Bible refer to King Nebuchadnezzar's behavior in the book of Daniel 4. And it could be a manifestation of clinical lycanthropy. Oh, good job. <laughs> and then a neurologist, Andrew J. Larner, has written that the fate of Odysseus's crew due to the magic of Circe may be one of the earliest examples of clinical lycanthropy. Hmm. It is believed that an Armenian king, Tiridates, maybe, <laughs> Tiridates III, had this disorder. But he was cured by someone called Gregory the Illuminator. Very mm -hmm. exciting. Ideas that lycanthropy was due to a medical condition go all the way back to the 7th century. A physician from, from Alexandria said that lycanthropy was due to melancholia or an excess of black bile. And a Lutheran physician later wrote that werewolves had an imbalance in their melancholic humor and exhibited the physical symptoms of paleness, a dry tongue, and a great thirst, as well as sunken, dim, and dry eyes. So they dehydrated. I guess so. <laughs> so the perception that uh, believing that you're a werewolf is not like meaning that you're truly a werewolf, but some sort of a psychological disorder has been well documented throughout history by numerous people. Well, at least we have that going for us. That's right. Instead of, you know, right. Mr. Stump. If you're interested in learning more about clinical lycanthropy, I would encourage you to, you know, do some research online about that. But we are going to refrain from talking about any cases here on the podcast just because we think it might be considered disrespectful in a Halloween episode. So I wish that I had a more straightforward answer about how werewolves, the myth, the legend came to be. but. I had a lot of fun researching for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Insert Halloween sound effects. <laughs> so, JJ. Yep. I think we should close out the season by giving some Halloween recommendations. 
It could be anything. It could be books, it could be movies, could be TV shows, any sort of spooky thing. Let's give a few. Okay. We'll say no more than five to keep it short because I know it could go on a lot. Mm-hmm. But let's just say like top five off the top of your head doesn't have to be all time, but just the things that just boom, come to you really quickly. Top five Halloween related things that people should check out. Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Oh my God. Yes. That movie is the ball. We got your friends. Uh, <laughs> yes. If you have not seen Tucker and Dale versus Evil, it needs to be at the top of the list. That's spectacular. Mm-hmm. Okay. I am going to say the X-Files episode Postmodern Prometheus. It's got Cher. It's got a, a spooky story. It's in black and white. It's got kitschy sound effects and fake lightning used, ironically, <laughs> peak 90s hipster vibe. Love it. <laughs> Were there hipsters in the 90s? Girl, that's where hipsters fucking came from. Are you serious? I don't know. Yes. Let's see. I enjoy um, some, like, ghost hunting stuff okay. during Halloween sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm partial to the, the early episodes of Ghost Hunters. Okay. But, sure. Yeah. Sure. I'm going to say the original Halloween movie, the mm-hmm. 1970s version. Man, you cannot get better than that. That is a just classic stalker movie. Just, mm, just peak Halloween mm-hmm. right there. I love it. I watch it every single year. Mm-hmm. The Haunting of Hill House. <gasps> yeah, on Netflix. Mm-hmm. I think it's still streaming. Yep, I yeah. saw it. There's a, a new, um, the people that made it, made. there's a new thing. Where there's a few seen the... the Midnight Club? Yes. Well, girl, I, I just I just binged the whole is thing this weekend. It is good. Did you read Christopher Pike novels as mm-hmm. a young adult? Okay, that's what it's based on. Mm-hmm. So you've heard of Goosebumps, R.L. Mm-hmm. Stein. Okay, yeah. Christopher Pike was in that same group of authors where it's like, thank you, you made my childhood great, but also, what the fuck, man? Like, are you fucking serious? Like, you, no one should publish this for young adults. What the fuck at 10 years old was I doing reading this shit? But anyway. Um, Welcome to my childhood. I just, Right. So many things that I should not have listened to or watched, and yet somehow did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so I don't actually remember the name of the book. It might have even just been The Midnight Club. Um, But this book has fucking stayed with me. I probably read this book when I was 11 or 12, okay? Mm -hmm. Way too young to be reading it. But it's about um, a group of teens that have terminal illnesses, and they are housed in this, like, group hospice. And I admit there are some issues with the premise of this. Like, it's kind of wacky, and some of the things that happen, I'm like, okay, that would not happen in a hospice, but whatever. Since I was a kid... I think about I think about this book once a year as an adult, okay? And I haven't I don't have it anymore. Like I just I but I think about the characters and there's a bunch of stories within a story cuz one of the things they do is tell scary stories. And so some of the stories that they tell have really stuck with me and everything and so like I just had so much nostalgia surrounding it and so I turned it on. And uh, Carl was like, "Mm, I don't know, you know, but eventually he like got into it. And then he was like, who's that? What's going on? What's this? You know, and everything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so it was really good. And we finished it. And it's getting some kind of bad press, which I was unprepared for. But I really enjoyed it as someone who had the basis of the book to work off of. Mm. 
So I might be a good litmus for someone who doesn't have that basis. But exactly. Yep. That's I mean, on our list to watch. The premise is updated. It is set in like the late 90s, mm-hmm. uh, you know, no cell phones and things like that. So it's set in a contemporary situation from the book, which I think was more set in the early 90s. But it's like, I don't, I don't know, I thought it was good. They have updated some aspects of it as in like it's not just about white people, right? So mm-hmm. they, but everything else was very similar to the original book and uh, they also took out some racist bullshit and also they took out some fat phobic stuff that I feel like didn't need to be in the novel in the first place, Christopher Pike. But I really, I think they took the best parts of it and made a comprehensive series that felt good. Hmm. I liked it. I'm looking forward to consuming that. Mm -hmm. I liked it. I forget now which number we're on because I got so excited that you mentioned the Midnight Club. Um, I think we're on four. Three, four? Okay. I think we're on four. So my number five would be um, anything Tim Burton. Tim Burton, yeah. I love me some of it. Mm. That's year-round. Yeah, we just watched Beetlejuice the other day. Mm. That's very good. a Beetlejuice costume for the Halloween <laughs> thing. Shirt and jacket. <laughs> jacket and pants. I'm ready. You're ready. I'm going to be around Beetlejuice, but. <laughs> so then the other thing that I'll recommend is the movie Halloween H2O, which is my favorite follow-up Jamie Lee Curtis movie to the original Halloween. I know that in the past few years they have come out with like new updated Halloween versions that have Jamie Lee Curtis in them, and I do like them, but like Halloween H2O is just the fucking bomb. So mm-hmm. I, in my heart, I like to think Halloween 1 and 2 happened then Halloween H2O, and then the story ended. Because that would have been the perfect thing. But anyway, those are my recommendations. I like it. Okay. All right, guys. We will see you next season for the podcast. Generally, we run March to October, and that is our plan still for next time. Yep. In the meantime, while we're off, we're going to be working hard to bring you a lot of really interesting and exciting content for next season. We appreciate you guys listening, and we appreciate you understanding that we need a break sometimes Mm -hmm. because producing a podcast year-round is like a full-time job, and we do not make any money from this. (laughs) (laughs) We already have full-time jobs. (laughs) And so I hope you have a good holiday, and we'll see you next season. If you have stories, questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. TikTok. <laughs> and it's at Introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Show sure do. And we'll see you next season. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>